This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book today is one that may be controversial to some. It's titled, Government Control of News, A Constitutional Challenge. And our author is Corey Don B. Dunham. Corey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me about the story behind this. There are some concerns by individuals like myself who are familiar with what's <clears throat> happening in the news and behind the news. Why did you feel you needed to write this book? I was uh, over 20 years as uh, general counsel of NBC and saw how the government, even sometimes well-intended, but whether or not well-intended, could smother criticism in the press. And if it had the legal right to investigate the press, it couldn't resist that. And uh, Congress would investigate uh, convention coverage, uh, the party in power uh, not wanting criticism of it, and the president in particular uh, not wanting criticism, and uh, for years fought the government, uh, sometimes with litigation taking four years, one of them, and many thousands of dollars to keep the government at bay. and I thought things were turning very bad here a few years ago. And unfortunately, I think that's come about. So we now have, for example, a uh, leading journalist of the New York Times. And even if they're seen as liberal, <clears throat> they certainly supported Obama writing that. And I want to get that quote right, that the Obama administration is the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation. Amazing. And just, you just think about that. I mean, that's, we just sort of assume that we'll have a free press, but it's already being uh, curtailed. It has been, and the threat is even greater. Not only the freedom of the press, but also I think accuracy perhaps is uh, is taking a... a, a backseat to, to uh, the fairness idea. There have been some... Uh, press releases or some news releases that the United States has sunk to maybe 47th in the That's world's right. uh, number of com- countries that ha- that is actually a free press. That's startling. Yep. Journalists Without Borders reviews virtually every country in the world every year, and we have sunk to 46. And this country used to be a beacon for free speech and free press, and now we're 46. That's scary. The, yes. fa- the fairness doctrine, is that still something that is going to be, I, I personally believe it's going to be something that's pursued by the government entities. Where are you seeing the fairness doctrine uh, as it stands today? What's happening? 
government has pulled it back because the courts uh, threw it out, revoked it, because it suppressed news, chilled speech, and prevented criticism of the president. And unfortunately, this president turns out to be someone who isn't going to take criticism. So the Fairness Doctrine, when he took office, was put back under a different name called uh, localism. And uh, that got hung up. And then they came up with a new one, the commission, which he appoints the chairman of and a majority that controls the uh, broadcasters. And uh, they passed or were about to pass the a law that would have set up local boards to review all news over the air. And if uh, it was defective in their view, then uh, they had to recommend loss of license, which obviously, obviously would, you know, intimidate broadcasters everywhere. Frightening. They, they dropped that, and now they've got floating something where they're going to investigate why you picked this subject for a news broadcast and why you picked what you did to say about it. Now, that's on hold for the moment. But they keep at it. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and the Obama's close friend, Cass Sunstein, fellow law professor, has written that uh, the government, he's long urged this, the government in power should take over the press to achieve its social objectives. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. And they had planned or had been talking about actually moving governmental overseers inside the newsrooms to watch yes. what yep. was going on. So it shows you their, I would say, lack of respect, <clears throat> certainly the lack of valuing. But in this Times reporter's words, you know, they're being an enemy of press freedom. They just aren't going to take any dissent or criticism, and they'll find ways to do it. They're even, they had planned to change broadcast spectrum from broadcast over the air use to the internet. And that's underway now. But one of the fallouts from that will be that the kind of talk shows or interviews or news provided by broadcasters will be off the air. They'll be gone. They won't have any spectrum. And maybe they can make alliances with cable, but that's a different story. You're going to have different owners and uh, less freedom. They also are doing some steps or making some steps to control the Internet. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that you know, the FCC didn't have any control of the Internet. They, uh, uh, on their own, without any congressional or executive uh, suggestion, uh, passed a rule a couple of years ago saying they would oversee the Internet. Um, and the courts overturned that. But now they're back, finding other ways to do it. In addition, what is going on is when I was uh, there at NBC, <clears throat> we would watch the Commerce Department, which in carrying out its role for commercial interests would join many other countries and they'd negotiate different things on how they would handle stuff, hardware as well as you know, software. 
for commercial reasons. Now, our commercial department does not have the First Amendment as its guiding light. And we were always concerned and watched to make sure that the commerce, the commerce department never had any say about who could control the Internet. Now, this administration, within the last two weeks, I think, has decided that we will no longer control or own uh, Internet uh, addresses or controls. And we're going to give that up to what will be a consortium of governments. And, of course, the heavy hitters in that consortium will be Russia, China, and a few other countries in South America who don't value the First Amendment. And you've got to know that the Commerce Department, to make the compromises necessary to them, will have to give up stuff on the free press and free speech, as Russia and China insist on it. Hmm. So, you know, we're talking about shooting ourselves in the foot. You wonder what this president is thinking when he authorizes this kind of stuff. Uh, there are many who do uh, have an opinion about what he's thinking, but they don't express it very much or don't have the no, platform no. To, to express it. And it's very hard to stop because it's all done maybe not with stealth, but the, the mind that says, well, let's have the FCC reinstate the fairness doctrine so we can control the news, but we'll call it localism, which sounds good. That tells you, I think, that, you know, this is an inadvertent what's happening to our free press in this country now. Now, if we lose the free press independent news watchdog over the government, it would be a, a disaster, obviously. But who else might be able to do this? Who else in terms of? Uh, being able to control media and and uh, take care of the uh, oversight of the government. But we can't. Once you have the government there, and this we learned from the Fairness Doctrine, that wasn't academic. That was an actual, you know, exercise. The government has to, in order to act, it says, it has to investigate. Well, if you're a station or a newspaper or whatever, and you get a little call from the government that says, we're sending two investigators over to look into your program on Corey Dunham or uh, Joe Dokes or... Uh, the other party, the political party, that's going to, you know, ring. And uh, the entire organization will know that the government is investigating. And uh, as with the Fairness Doctrine, that meant the whole system had to change to deal with this government inquiry. They interviewed the news people and their sources. That's the big thing. Uh, and, you know, many of them were intimidated. A smaller station didn't have the money to fight the government. NBC, and it's one of its big fights, the legal bills were $400,000 uh, because the government's, you know, coffers are, when it comes to fighting the press, unlimited. They just call up the Department of Justice and away it goes. So this administration also knows that one way to stop the press is to go after its sources go after leaks, and they have a special unit they've set up to go after leaks, which otherwise would be news, information, 
Floyd to the newspapers confidentially, and then the newspapers would report to the public. Well, they brought this administration over 200 prosecutions against the press leaks. And I mean, nobody's going to talk to the press if you want to divulge, you know, what is abuse or wrongdoing, because you're going to be scared to get investigated. And you will be. And this has already worked. The head of the Associated Press from that government subpoena and investigation uh, said uh, the government will see that you only know what the government wants you to know. And that's a very, very scary thing. From your observation point, and you've been in broadcasting or associated with broadcasting for a number of years, and this is a well-thought-out, well-researched book. It's not just um, commentary on opinion. (laughs) You've got 296 pages. Is there any way that you can see that government officials really can gain control over broadcast news, as you've uh, claimed in your book? Well, it so happens that I, I think they could. But it would be very quiet. In the fairness doctrine situation, they did gain control. The government used, and both parties, once it's established, both parties will do it. And there's no respecting of uh, nobility. Uh, Nixon used the uh, fairness doctrine to go after news reports he didn't like. And the Kennedy administration used the fairness doctrine to drive conservative commentators off the air. They would file a lot of complaints under the law, and the government would investigate them, and it got so broadcast that said, hell, I'm not going to get into that mess fighting City Hall. You know, we just won't cover it. We won't you know, do controversial stuff or stuff that's going to offend the president. Do you have that? you have, you know, that's the end of freedom. I mean, jeez. <laughs> The free press is the only thing that keeps us free. What is your suggestion or recommendation, not only on a a national level, but on a local level, in order to combat this? I think uh, we have to talk it up. We have to disclose what's happening. And one of the problems is, unlike years ago, when the owners of newspapers and the owners of the networks and the like would, you know, get up and make speeches... And they would be heard, and that would gather attention, and the government would pull back. Though they're not saying a word, in my view, it looks to me like they've been co-opted. They've got so many irons in the fire before Congress and subject to presidential disapproval that they're not saying a word. They'd rather, you know, uh, just stay quiet and do what they can, sort of like getting caught up with China. I think. The only thing a citizen individually can do is to become more than an individual. You've got to join groups, uh, support political entities on this issue. Not all of them necessarily that they have, but on this issue, you've got to write the uh, Congress, members of the Congress. Uh, it's, it's a tough goal. The people who supported bringing back the fairness doctrine included Reed who's the, Democrat, the Democratic leader of the Senate, and uh, Pelosi, who was the, at that time the Democratic leader of the House. So this is no easy uh, f- fight to fight. We've got to have groups or the press itself 
and uh, organizations, those who believe in constitutional government or in the Constitution, uh, have got to start to speak up. And if enough, enough noise is made, then you can hope that maybe they'll government people will pull back. But as it is now, why should they? They can prevent criticism so they don't you know, have trouble at re-election, and their views will uh, carry the day. Uh, Corey, you've got years of experience in this area. How long did it take you to write your book and, and put the facts out there for the public to read? Well, it took several years when I saw this starting to happen. And I wanted to write a book. It's not very entertaining and no pictures, but I wanted to write a book that would stand as, so to speak, a testimony of an executive at one of the leading networks of the day at that time. It happened to be NBC, but then the other, Frank Stanton, I don't want to be compared with him, but he was great. He ran CBS, and I wrote a book about him and his fight with Congress and Nixon uh, about uh, coverage. Uh, which they tried to stop. But the, the, uh, I wanted a book that now and for the foreseeable future you could turn to and every statement in it that meant, you know, an opinion or maybe perceived as an opinion or a, a fact has, has a site, as you say, several hundred pages of footnotes. And uh, I don't want to put people off of that, but if you see in that book I've written a sentence, you'll see that there's a number there, and you can check and see what the source is for that. Who needs to read your book, Corey? All of us. It's so going, I know, for, let's say, high school, but uh, uh, most of us remember the Kennedy and the Nixon administrations in different ways, of course. And most of us remember some of these fights, for example, the... the uh, a convention in Chicago when uh, Lyndon Johnson decided he wouldn't run. And the, the then the Daly out there wanted his city to look good. So he turned out the National Guard, all the policemen brought in the military to keep things quiet. And there were people who dissented and who wanted to raise the question of the Vietnam War. And uh, boy, oh boy, they were given a rough time. And the networks covered that. Now, i got to tell you, the Congress was just incensed that the networks would broadcast dissent like they did then. And they investigated the networks, hearings. We produced, you know, thousands of documents and uh, film. Uh, that's the government power. So if someone like Reed, who happens to be a majority leader of the Senate, threatens the press, and you know they know there are ways he can get out, and that's the risk for all of us. It's a scary idea and uh, an important book that you've written. Were there challenges in getting this into print? Well, uh, sometimes, <laughs> some unknown reasons, there would be some, but nothing that really prevented. Uh, I wasn't prevented, really, from saying what I wanted to be said, what should be said. Uh, I was very fortunate that way. And it's, you know, it's low-key. It doesn't have uh, a big call to arms on the cover and all that. But, uh, you know, the, the, the meat is there. Now, I didn't then know 
of course, what would happen as it has over the past two years, where you have the present administration really uh, going to bat. This guy, Cass Sunstein, who is the president's advisor and was in charge of all regulatory affairs at the White House, he wrote that with the new kind of society we have, we should have a single channel that would be the government's channel if they didn't take over all the news that would be subsidized by the government and print what the government wanted it to print. And that would be one way to uh, inculcate uh, the public as to what the, the government wanted to be done. And obviously, if you have that with unlimited resources, uh, it's like City Hall, you know, you, it's a tough you have a tough time criticizing them. It's an important story, and in the way you've described it, somewhat frightening. The title of the book is Government Control of News, a Constitutional Challenge, and our author, Corey Don B. Dunham. Corey, where can we get copies of your book? Amazon is the best bet, I think. Or you can write to uh, or call uh, our universe, and uh, they... Uh, put it out as a, uh, what is called a trade pack, uh, uh, paperback, which means heavier paper. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, you can order it from them. Either place, iUniverse or uh, Amazon. Corey, thank you for sharing your story and sharing this important bit of information that our listeners need to be aware of and need to take a stand on. I appreciate you are taking the time to do that and sounding the alarm about this vital and important subject. Thank you. Listeners, you can learn more about government censorship on Corey's blog at www.freepressdunham.com. That's www.freepressdunham, that's spelled D-U-N-H-A-M, dot com. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Itsy Bitsy Spider, and the author is Dale L. Pitts, and Dale joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dale. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Well, great to have you with us right in our studio. We don't get this opportunity very often to have one of our authors uh, be with us like this, so again, welcome. Uh, you drove up from Houston. I'm very happy to be here. 
Itsy Bitsy Spider. I know when I first saw the title, I went, oh, a kid's book. Wow, this, this sounds interesting, but obviously not a kid's book. It's a book of uh, basically science fiction novel, and it deals with the interaction between a man and a form of life not encountered by anyone before, as you call them, subterranean beings. That's right. And we'll learn more about who they are and who the, obviously, the main characters and the plot. Uh, but first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dale, and how this book came about. Well, I'm, I'm a native Texan. Uh, my, uh, my family has been here for many, many years, and uh, I've been made many miles in my professional career. I've lived over most of the United States. I've lived out of the United States from time to time. I've had a, a variety of uh, professional experiences. I, I started out as a high school biology teacher, football coach, and I moved <laughs> from that into uh, being an FBI agent, and that's, that's a long story, too. Uh, from there, I, I moved around the United States, and then uh, the moving actually was too much for the family, and we decided we can't uh, li- can't move every year like we have in the past. So we decided to come back to Texas. I got back into public education, uh, became a principal, became a school district superintendent. I wound up, uh, after I retired, uh, being a professor in college at several different places. I've been a a, uh, an assistant athletic director at Texas Christian University. So I've uh, I've done some things. I guess you have. My goodness. And now you're an author on top of it. I'm trying to be, yes. Now you're an author, Itsy Bitsy Spider. Tell us about John Paul Gordon. He's the main character. John Paul Gordon is the main character. And uh, I was once told by a person, a friend that I have, that write about something you know about. Well, I know about schools, so I decided to make John Paul a school district superintendent. The book is not about schools, but everybody has to be something. (laughs) So the main character is a a school district superintendent. And uh, he runs into some very tough luck uh, in his life, loses his wife in a tragic accident, and uh, uh, doesn't really know what he's going to do with himself. And uh, he he gets involved in the job that he has, and uh, he decides, I need to move on. You know, I'm unhappy here, and I need to move on down the road. So he moves to West Texas, and that's when his uh, experiences begin. Um, he, so is this a fictional place in West Texas, this well, town? Well, it has a fictional name. All of the towns that are listed in the book are real. The the town where all the action takes place is a real town. I give it a, a a fictional name. However, if you've been to West Texas and been around this area, you'll know immediately <laughs> the town we're talking so about. So you have him move to a place called Appleby. 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 Uh huh. Appleby. And of course, he's trying to get away from these obviously uh, terrible. Uh, experiences that he's had, the loss of his uh, wife, and and he starts to drink. Well, he does. He it's it's sort of a refuge for him, and it he gets to where he drinks a little too much, and it's uh, I won't say it. It's because of the drinking that the Midas, the the subterranean beings appear, but he is inebriated the first few times he sees them, uh, and I think that prevents him from being afraid of them when he first sees them. 
and things develop from there. So would we be afraid of them if we saw them for the Prob- first time? Probably. They look a little different. They look different. I could go into great detail <laughs> to describe them. And uh, the, the, the funny thing about it is uh, John Paul has a dog. The dog's name is Homer. Homer's not afraid of these subterranean beings. So there's hmm. there's something about them that right. allows a, an immediate attack. Well, and Homer's a devoted friend to John Paul. John Very, Paul. So if Homer's not afraid, <laughs> you're right. You're yeah, right. I mean that's usually we get a sense of folks when the dog is around. Dogs seem to sense things. Homer's cautious, but he's not afraid as you might expect. Now, when he goes to Appleby, he also meets Nancy. He meets Nancy Reina, who is a uh, a veterinarian. She's a graduate of Texas A and M, uh, and she actually they actually meet as a result of Homer. Homer needs some uh, veterinarian care, and that's how they meet. So obviously, we've got a relationship growing here between John Paul and Nancy. Uh, but animals are turning up dead. The well, they're turning up missing. We don't missing. Know, oh, we, okay, missing. Yeah, because there's very little evidence when when the animals turn up missing. There's very little evidence evidence as to what happened to them. And, is there uh, anything left? I mean, is there blood or is there? Well, in, in one situation where a, a dog turns up missing, the dog's collar is all they find. There's another situation where situation where a horse turns up missing. They find a a piece of the horse's ear and a few drops of blood, and that's all that they find. So there's something, as you put it, devious going on. That's exactly right. Devious. Yeah, well, yeah, devious. Uh, uh, this is where the protection idea comes from. John Paul does not know what is happening to these animals. But after it happens several times, he starts putting things together, and he gets suspicious, and things develop from there. So he may be a target. He may. I don't think so. No, I, okay. and I don't think I don't intend to give the uh, the feeling that he is a target uh, because uh, the subterranean beings. They've never been aggressive or shown any aggression toward him, so therefore he's not afraid. He's not afraid of them, but uh, there's something strange going on. There's something devious going on. Uh, without giving away, of course, the, the whole right. plot here, uh, because of these strange things that are happening and the animals that are disappearing, appearing, the small community, how is it affecting them? Well, it's it's primarily affecting the people who live on the, the outskirts of the little community, the, the ranchers, because those are the animals that are missing. I need to bring up here probably the, the title of the book is Itsy Bitsy Spider, and, and I don't mind telling the whole world there are no spiders in it. But the Itsy, <laughs> the itsy Bitsy Spider comes from the old nursery rhyme mm-hmm. song, Itsy Bitsy Spider. Right, right. And, uh, when John Paul sings this song, he's able to control the subterranean beings because they like the song. <laughs> they like the song. Now, do, how much do we learn about the Midas? Midas. Uh-huh. Midas. How much do we learn about them? 
I, I don't, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, uh, you know, obviously they're appearing to John Paul, but there, is there more going on here? Is there, there something that, that they need from John Paul? No, no. It's the Itsy Bitsy Spider song that they like to hear him sing. Okay. So, uh, but when Homer is threatened, they get involved. They get involved. In fact, Homer has an accident, and the Midas see Homer as an extension of John Paul's family. They've adopted, in a sense, the whole family, and when something happens to Homer, an accident happens with Homer, they want to make it right or take care of whatever caused the accident. And, of course, the same would apply to John Paul if he's threatened at all. There'd Absolutely. There are, there are a couple of situations where John Paul, well, I don't mind telling you here and telling the audience, John Paul gets bitten by a dog. The Midas see the injury, and they want to know they don't talk, but they have a way to communicate, want to know what happened. Well, he explains to them what happened, and uh, uh, they take care of the dog, so to speak. So they become very much a part of John Paul's life. They do. They're not there all the time. They appear periodically. So it's not like they're, they're you know, family. They're not there all the time. So after writing this book, are you a real believer in subterranean I'm not going to say that I believe they exist, but I will be quick to say I don't think it's impossible. Not impossible, everyone. And uh, John Paul, is he patterned after, you know, someone real? Is that you? Eh, probably very loosely. Uh, he gets involved, even though I said the, school, the story is not about schools, because he works at a school. There are some situations at the school that I've been involved in, so I just use that as a pattern. And if we did, if we did actually see them, or if, if we really knew they existed, would people be afraid of the Midas? Probably so, because they're different, and I think one of our uh, natural instincts as human is we, we don't trust or we're afraid of things that are dramatically different, so they probably would be afraid. So John Paul, he's had to literally recoup, uh, kind of reinvent himself. Is, is that a theme of this story? No, the basic theme in, in my mind is the idea of relationships that have been developed between John Paul and the Midas, between John Paul and his dog, between John Paul and Nancy, between John Paul and some of his neighbors. Uh, the, 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 the message I'm trying to deliver is the importance of friendships, relationships, devotion, loyalty, to, because the Midas are extremely loyal to John Paul. And in this case, we all heard the saying, you know, bad things sometimes happen to good people. At the same time, when bad things happen, something good can evolve from it. Absolutely. It's because Nancy and John Paul both have been through, they've both lost their spouses in traumatic situations. And because of the things that are happening, it draws Nancy and John Paul together, which is a, a good way to end a story. And, of course, uh, good deeds really can make a big difference. Absolutely. I don't think that you ever pass up an opportunity to, to do a good deed for another person, for another animal, for anything. Well, Dale, in just the time we have left, uh, any closing thoughts uh, that you'd like to share about Itsy Bitsy Spider? Well, you know, 
I made the statement that these uh, these miters are not creatures or monsters. The book can be read very enjoyably by people, probably by readers, probably from junior high age on up, because there's no there's no graphic violence, there's no sex in the book. There are places where things happen, and you use your imagination. You can think whatever happens happens. You know that's up to you. It's your relationship with that book. So you think whatever you want to think. But it's, it's, it's a book that would be uh, acceptable for most readers. We've been listening to author Dale L. Pitts. He's the creator of his book, Itsy Bitsy Spider, uh, with iUniverse. Tell us how to get your book, if there's other ways besides I, iUniverse. Yes, the book is available on uh, Amazon.com. It's available uh, at Barnes & Noble's bookstores as well as bar- through Barnes & Noble's uh, on the internet, uh, it's available from me. I don't have a website up and operating right now. It's in process, but uh, you know. I've, Do you know what it will be? What the uh, the URL will be? Um, I have it. I don't have okay. it committed to memory. I, I can uh, get rid of this out of the. I can edit this out. Okay. Well, Dale, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Hey, this has been a good experience, and I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Woman Possessed, and the author is Marilyn Herring, and Marilyn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marilyn. Hi. Great to have you with us. This is uh, quite quite a novel based on history. In fact, it's so interesting and got such uh, intrigue in it, as well as this romance story that uh, a film writer is uh, right now, as we speak, I guess, uh, writing a script. Yes, that's true. Very good, Marilyn. Uh, let me just read a little bit more. Uh, kind of set the stage here. You say the book is a historical romance set against the 1913 Great Silk Strike in Patterson, yes. New Jersey. And, of mm-hmm. course, it focuses on the main character, Eleanor, and she uh, has to make a big decision of who she's going to marry. Is she going to follow her heart? Is she going to uh, make sure she's not poor anymore? 
And then, of course, she struggles with uh, some depression, mental problems. So this has got all of the elements of a page-turner. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Marilyn, why don't you give us a little background on yourself before we talk about these characters and the plot. But tell us about yourself and why you wrote the book. Well, I was born in Patterson, and I lived in Patterson for 21 years. And I did live in the Tenement District, so a lot of the book is disguised autobiography, I guess you would say. And uh, my background is I went to uh, Montclair State University and got my BA there, got my MA there, and then I got 30 credits beyond my MA because I just love literature so much and books and the reason for that being, of course, you know, living in the situation where I was, my father could read, but he uh, he really couldn't write, and my mother couldn't read and write, so the library was, was what really saved me, and then after I graduated from Montclair, I got a job as an English teacher, teaching senior English and honors English at Pascack Valley High School, and that was good and bad because it was good because it was wonderful I love the students but it was bad because they did so much writing that I spent so much of 32 years of my life evaluating other people's writing <laughs> but in my heart I knew that I wanted to be the, the writer so it took me 70 years <laughs> to get to the point that I finally said this is it I am not this going to go to it. my grave with yes. that last dream of mine unfulfilled and so I started A Woman Possessed and uh, it worked out very well for me I'm happy to say and your father was a weaver uh, during this uh, during those early yes. early years yes he was a weaver in the 40s and the 50s and unfortunately he was home more than he was on strike, he was on strike at home more than he was working. I remember that, but of course, I was about five or six years old at that time, and I remember the beautiful pieces of floral tapestry he used to bring home mm. because if there was like a float in the in the pattern, it couldn't be used, and so we had the most beautiful curtains on the street <laughs> <laughs> made from these the different tapestries that he would bring home and he was a big influence on me so we're going to talk about the main character Eleanor O'Banion mm -hmm. now tell us about Eleanor well she lives in the tenements and she has to decide to either give her give her love to this Dante Rivelli who was a very charismatic speaker and from he was from the Union he came to help with the strike. He was from the IWW, the International Workers of the World. And this is a very important time period for the labor movement, of course. Or she can marry Charles Lafferty, who is a very plain, plain, plain man. But he's kind and he's good. And his father is a silk mill baron who owns one of the largest silk mills in Patterson. So, of course, she knows if she marries him, she's never going to be poor again. 
So she has to make that choice in the structure of the novel of which one of the two she will marry or be with at least. And it takes us back over a hundred years, back into uh, 1913 when the strike was Mm -hmm. going on. And of course, working conditions were pretty tough back then. Oh, really? Yes, they really were. And the strike was terrible because they thought the strike was only going to last, oh, maybe a week or two. And instead it lasted from January to July. And so, so many of the people were near starvation and they had to send the children out of the city to kindly and good families and so that they could be fed and the young men especially who lived in these families in Patterson uh, would go to other towns to see if they could get work so that they could send money home and uh, it was a bloody strike too there was a, you know there was a death involved and it was really quite horrible. So Eleanor, again, has this dilemma, you know, the charismatic and passionate Dante or this kind of a, just kind of a mm. plain but stable, dependable, safe, mm-hmm. kind Charles. But she's also got some other challenges, doesn't she, in her in her past that, that kind of haunt her. Yes, that's true. Yes, um... She had been abused as a little girl by the man that she thought was her father. Later on, we discovered that he wasn't her father. So she has to go through these, this terrible depression that she finds herself in at times, and she just doesn't understand completely at that age. She was five years old why she feels the way that she does and that's what I pick up on in my second novel which is uh, called A Woman Beloved Mm. Um, and I've I've always been interested in social problems so that novel will deal with mental illness Mm -hmm. and alcoholism and what was happening in those areas at the turn of the century when Freud was of course came into being in Europe so. so Eleanor marries Charles, but unfortunately she can't stop thinking about Dante. Mm-hmm. Right. So what kind yes. of an effect does it have on her and, and Charles? And, you know, uh, is this something that she can overcome? Well, she doesn't really ever overcome it in the structure of the book. But what happens is he is so idealistic that he decides that he's going to go to Russia and be part of the Russian Revolution, which I have in the book. And she doesn't really want to be part of of that. But yet, on the other hand, she loves him so dearly that she has that conflict also. And she is also married to... Charles Lafferty at that time and she has a child so that's another big concept that she has to go through what she's going to do there as well so she has to make some very very big decisions just to be happy just to be happy yeah just to be happy and as you point out uh, you know a lot of uh, stories have that uh, they lived happily ever after, but this isn't one of those. No, this is just 
pure historical fiction. This is not a romance. I was brought up on books like Gone with the Wind and The Thorn Birds and Dr. Zhivago and really, uh, what should I say, deeper stories. And mm-hmm. I wanted to write something like that rather than something more fluffy. Right. Know, where they live, the characters at the end live happily ever after, and I'm really not a great fan of the modern, um, the bestseller list. I don't read too many books on that list because they all seem to be churned out. You know, well, one is the same as the other after a while. So. Will men enjoy reading this? Yes, so many men have approached me with this talking about this book, which shocks me in a way, mm-hmm. because the title, of course, is A Woman Possessed, and I would have thought that a man would not be as not, as likely to read it, but then when I explain that it's about that great silk strike in labor history, they do read it, and uh, they really enjoy it very much. So I'm so happy about that, because I didn't want to quote write quote a women's book Unquote. Well, you ask the big question. Will she choose Dante, Charles, or her own liberation? That is mm-hmm. really the, the, the big question. And, of course, the answer is you'll find out if you read the book. But that is the mm-hmm. big question. Yes, that's it. You hit it right on the, the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Marilyn, it's so nice to talk to you. Uh, as you've mentioned uh, already, a woman possessed the title. Can't forget that. And Marilyn mm-hmm. Herring, H-E-R-I-N-G. And the publisher is iUniverse. Uh, what's the best way to get your book, Marilyn? Well, the best way, I would say, would be through Amazon or through, of course, iUniverse. Uh, it's also an e-book. It's also available digitally from Barnes & Noble. They don't carry it in their store, but if you order it, they will digitally mm-hmm. order it. Okay. So those would be the four best ways, and there are some books, some bookshops that will order it for you as well, and especially who? now that it's going to be made. Well, hopefully into the, hopefully into a film, but right, having a, a film script. It's just as trying to sell a film script, they tell me, is very difficult, right. too. So sure. we shall see. And also, I did want to mention that it's going to be in the Publishers Weekly, which is a weekly that's distributed to librarians all over the nation. And it's going to be the first time that published books that are iBooks or independently published by people will be um, allowed to be in Publishers Weekly, so they chose my book as one of the first five that they're going to add, so I'm thrilled. I'm floating on air over that one, too. So. <laughs> oh, congratulations, Marilyn. That's wonderful. Well, it, right. it looks like it, again, has all the great elements of a page-turner for both men and women, a woman-possessed Marilyn, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh, thank you so much for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be able to reach people about the book because it's such an important book, I think. 
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.